If you are just actively investing in like single family rental properties, I I just don't see the the higher returns on single family rentals, small multifamily rentals over passive investments in syndications or funds or you know other private equity investments. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Brian, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, I've been looking forward to this for about a month now, so <laughs> I'm excited to have you. But before we get going, you know we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite yeah. ice cream? Ah, uh, I would probably have to say pistachio gelato. Uh and probably not one that you get often, but uh, or maybe lucuma because I live in Peru, so lucuma is a, a common flavor here. It's a it's a fruit that is down here, and some people say that it has kind of chocolatey notes in it, uh, maybe a little caramel. It's delicious. Yeah, we have not had lucuma. You'd be surprised. Pistachio is making a run for the number one rec- really uh, thing thing mentioned. Yeah, I don't know. It's like in the past six weeks, something has happened where everything tastes like pistachio. I guess because <laughs> the last like ten guests I've had have been like pistachio gelato specifically. Oh man, well I'm I'm glad that uh, I added lucuma in there, so I didn't sound so basic. <laughs> and that's like a, a chocolate you said in Peru. Uh, no, no, lucuma is a fruit. Uh, it's a local fruit here in South America. Okay. Um, it's the most popular ice cream flavor in Chile, and it's one of the most popular ice cream flavors here in Peru. Uh, it's delicious, so highly recommended. Um, amazing. I'll have to check that out when I make it down that way. Well, go. tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Man, <laughs> our, so our business has been around for about eight years, and it has changed and evolved a lot over that period. Uh, you know, I... People say that what you think your business is is not necessarily what other people think your business is, and that has certainly been the case for us. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll skip all the meandering, you know, history uh, and say that what we are focusing on today is a passive investment club for real estate investors, uh, so people can go in together on passive real estate investments, you know, funds, real estate syndications, that sort of thing, notes. Uh, one of the biggest drawbacks to that kind of investing is the high minimum investment, 50 grand, 100 grand, you know, that's really hard for a lot of typical Americans uh, or really anybody. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a high minimum. Uh, and it's also hard to, to find investors, especially investors who allow non-accredited investors. It's hard to vet, invest, or, uh, vet sponsors. It's hard to uh, vet individual investments. So we do all of that as an investment club. Every month we get together, we vet deals, we bring on sponsors for Q&A, we grill them. You've been there. <laughs> we, we, we've had you in there. Um, and then we, we go in on the investments together. So each member of the club can invest five grand or more if they want in a given deal or, or skip that deal and move on to the next one. Uh, so it's, it's a way to you know, democratically invest in, in passive real estate investments. Yeah, I have been in the hot seat and your investors asked a lot of good questions that I was like, huh, I haven't had that question. I actually don't know the answer to that. Let me go research it. So <laughs> you're doing a good job educating and democratizing the investment process. Well, you know, they educate me. I mean, you know, that's part of the fun is that, you know, every time we vet a deal together, I mean, there are tons of questions from our members that that never would have occurred to me. So, you know, not only are we educating them, they're educating us at the same time. It's a lot of fun. Amazing. Well, before we dig into kind of the co-investment model and some of the benefits and downsides and all those sorts of things, take us back. Where did your real estate journey begin? 
Man, so I, I fell into real estate totally by accident. You know, I graduated college. This is back in 2003. I'm 22 years old at the time. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, you know, like a lot of young people, right? Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of struggling to figure out what I want to do. I graduated with a double major in psychology and criminal justice. I had a, a minor in anthropology, and these are like the most useless <laughs> degrees in the world, right? So I ended up doing a summer internship for a lending company where the, my stepdad was friends with one of the owners. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's how that happened. Uh, you know, again, as happens with so many of us. And it turns out, so they, they had a, a nationwide subprime mortgage lending company, which was all the rage, right? In 2003. Uh, I know where this story need... ends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't need another loan officer though. They had plenty of loan officers what they needed, the, the two guys that owned the company, they lent hard money loans on the side. It was like a side hustle of theirs, lending hard money loans with their personal money, with their friends and family money. So they needed somebody to oversee their hard money loans uh, and be a loan officer or account executive for, for their private hard money loans. So that's what they asked me if I wanted to continue doing at the end of that internship. They say, well, you know what? Why don't you come handle these for us? And I was like, okay, why not? You know, it sounds interesting. So I started working with investors in that capacity. I'm watching all of these flippers and, you know, Burr investors just making money hand over fist, right? 2003, 2004, 2005, you know, it's a big party in real estate. <laughs> you know, everybody's making money. And I'm like, man, I got to get into this. I got to do this too. So, you know, I start just plowing all of my money into these investments, into... It was mostly low end, and even that is a generous way of putting it, like very, very low end affordable housing, you might call it, if we're using euphemisms in Baltimore City. Um, you know, properties that needed total guts and renovations. And, you know, I had no experience renovating properties, so I'm just kind of winging it. And I made so many, I mean, I made every mistake in the book. I mean, everything that you could do wrong as a real estate investor, I did wrong. And, you know, and that was okay for a couple years until 2008 hit. And then all those mistakes caught up with me in a big way. And, you know, like you said, you know where that story ends. I mean, <laughs> there, there's not a, <laughs> there's not a twist here. There's no plot twist. Um, it ended horribly. So not only did all of my investments just totally collapse in 2008, but my day job, my income also collapsed because no one's borrowing hard money loans anymore, right? I mean, no one's flipping houses anymore. No one's doing bird deals anymore. It totally dried up. So, you know, I had to completely reinvent <laughs> my, my entire career, my investment strategy. Uh, I had a, a girlfriend at the time who was a travel nurse and she invited me to go hit the road with her and travel the country doing three months here, three months there. And I, my thought calculus was basically, well, I don't have anything else going on. So I mean, why not? Let's go have an adventure. Uh, and I, I ended up falling into another job. Uh, it was a job working for an e-commerce company that sold, they specialized in landlord uh, legal forms uh, for specifically mom and pop landlords. So I ended up, I, I got that job specifically because I was a landlord and because I had real estate investing experience. So it wasn't like everything that had happened up to that point was a total loss, right? I mean, and that's the way your career goes, right? I mean, you even when things go sideways for you and things go wrong, there's always that silver lining. There's always that opportunity if you're willing to, to see it and, and take it. So uh, yeah, my career took a, a totally different direction there with online marketing uh, and learning how to serve real estate investors uh, in a different way. 
So a couple of things I want to dig into in your story is one, you are a hard money loan officer. Um, one, how do you get compensated doing that? Uh, points <laughs> is this the short answer? Um, so hard money loans, as you know, they're expensive, uh, and they were even more expensive in at that time. Uh, so we were typically charging four points and fourteen uh, percent interest on those hard money loans. Now the market for hard money lending is a little bit more competitive today. You can you can probably you can find better deals as a borrower today. Uh, because you have these nationwide platforms uh, that are that are lending money in most states, so yeah, there's there's more competition among lenders today, and it, there's just more transparency and visibility in that space. But back then, I mean, it was still kind of the wild west with hard money loans. You, know, you just worked with local lenders, uh, like this guy, <laughs> these two yeah. guys I was working for. Um, so yeah, four four points, fourteen percent interest was the standard. Sometimes it would be more if if we felt it was particularly risky. Um, I mean, the, the, the friends and family deal was 2.12% interest. <laughs> so, yeah, which is like the norm now. Yeah. 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 Four, four and 14. I mean, that is insane. And I know a lot of listeners out there are like, who in the world would take money that expensive? But you got to remember, first of all, this was 2003 to 2005. There wasn't really, the internet was just now starting to become a nationwide thing or international thing. And second of all, like I'm always a big fan of if you could make the numbers work for your specific deal, then it's okay. Like some deals that definitely doesn't pencil out in, but some deals, if you're buying a house for $14,000, $15,000, and you can go flip it for 150, your financing costs aren't the biggest expense there. So just getting a deal done and moving quick is this the advantage. Yeah. And it was really, it was the points that hurt the borrowers there, not the interest because people are only carrying those loans for, you know, four or five, six months at the most. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're just short-term purchase rehab loans. So, you know, paying, paying 14% interest for four months, it's just not that much money in a, in a total dollars uh, amount at the end of the loan. Uh, the four points that does, <laughs> that does add up. Yeah. Uh, so that yeah. was really where the downside was. And just to clarify, points are how much you charge on the loan. So if it's a $100,000 loan, four points, you're charging $4,000 upfront. Right. One point is 1% of the loan money. amount. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, so you were kind of going out there, uh, uh, pimping out this money, I guess, throughout <laughs> Baltimore. But I also understand in your journey that you bought some homes and affordable homes in the Baltimore area as well. Can you talk us through that part of your journey? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... <laughs> uh, I would... I would caution most investors away from from investing the way that I did. Um, you know, buying fixture uppers in the the worst neighborhoods in one of the one of the most uh, dangerous and <laughs> shall we say affordable cities in the country. Um, yeah, I mean, everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. Um, I mean, <laughs> so uh, here's here's the biggest problem with super low end real estate is that you're working with the people who aren't or the people who are willing to work with those properties at every level because the people who uh char or the people who have a choice in the matter typically don't work with those properties so the easiest example is property managers right the best property managers don't want to take those properties because they get paid a percentage of the rent, right? Uh, or a fee equivalent to a month's rent or half month's rent or whatever for placing tenants. But they get paid as a percentage of, of rent collected, basically. And the rent is super low on those properties, but the labor is really high. I mean, those renters tend to be 
very, uh, shall we say high maintenance. <laughs> so yeah. it's more work, less money. So good property managers, the cream of the crop, they won't touch that stuff. So that leaves you with really the dregs of the industry who is willing to work with those properties. Uh, and these are the kinds of hidden costs that just don't show up on paper when you're evaluating those types of properties. So on paper, those properties, they look great, right? The, the margins look great. You know, you, you find these properties that are renting for 2% of the purchase price, maybe even more than 2% of the purchase price. Um, yeah, on paper, the cash flow looks great. The, the cap rates look great. Everything looks wonderful on paper uh, until you start digging into the day-to-day -day reality of owning and managing those, those properties. Uh, because all of the, these, hidden costs start coming to light. Uh, and again, they, they just, they're hard. They don't really show up on a paper analysis, you know, things like crime rates. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you the number of air conditioning condensers got ripped apart from on, in these properties, people stealing the copper out of them. So, I mean, that happened all the time. And, you know, so if, if then I started like putting these big steel cages over the properties and then they, people would come in and, and, and find a way to get through those. So then I just stopped putting air conditioning in these properties because they, there was no way to, to protect it. So, you know, I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that makes you very cynical. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but you know, so that, this is why people, you know, people complain about slumlords, but, oh, you know, they're trying to peddle these properties with no air conditioning. Yeah, because people keep stealing the, the air conditioning units and ripping apart, you know, for the copper. Like, so, yeah, any, anytime I hear someone, like, knock a, quote, slumlord, I'm like, okay, go walk a mile in that person's shoes and, and you know, yeah. you go on properties in that area and then come back and talk to me about how terrible, you know, landlords are in these in these areas. Yeah. So I want to caution listeners out there and say that you can absolutely make money if you know what you're doing in these kind of properties. I know bunches of people that are killing it in those areas. However, I have a uh, strong uh, turnoff away from these renter, like turnkey rental companies that are like, Hey, we just, we rented this property out or we bought this property in Akron, Ohio. You could buy it for $50,000 and it rents for, you know, $800 a month. You're going to be killing it. Well, one, when you go replace an air conditioning unit or an HVAC unit, it doesn't get cheaper based off of the price of the property. Right. So a property that costs, you know, 300,000 and is 2000 square foot, you're going to buy the same HVAC for a property that costs 50 grand, that's 1500 square foot. And your margins and your revenues are not higher in the lower income areas. So it's going to be more cash out of pocket. And then two is the fact that there are hidden sunk costs that you're not seeing. Tenant turnover, tenant abuse of the properties, just different wear and tear metrics that are going to exceed your typical, I'm just going to hold 5% for CapEx expenses out. That is 100% true. <laughs> and that, that was my experience. The, the tenants tended, you know, we're generalizing here, of course, but that's the only way that you can talk about, you know, millions upon millions of homes in the US that, that are in the bracket that we're talking about. Uh, yeah, the, the tenants did tend to put a lot more wear and tear and abuse on the properties. Uh, the turnover rates were higher. Uh, you know, it was much harder to find quality tenants. Um, you know, if you go on, say, bigger pockets and you read the forums or, you know, you read articles, and, you know, everyone's like, oh, well, you know, screen tenants, you know, run credit reports. I'm like, yeah, but in these neighborhoods, nobody has a credit score over 600. So you can run every, every credit report you want. You're not going to find a tenant with good credit, right? I mean, so it, you have to go deeper than that. It's a lot harder to find good tenants in these areas. And 
identifying who is a good tenant versus who is not is harder in these areas because it doesn't show up in you know simple metrics like credit scores. You have to go and you have to physically walk through their current home to see how they treat it, right? And you have to do that without giving them any notice that you're coming so they don't actually yeah. you know run around and clean things up really quickly and make it look better. Uh, it's just harder. Everything about it is harder. Um, you know, and even when you have really good tenants, I've had great tenants in these bad areas that got chased out of the neighborhood basically by their neighbors who were slinging drugs and, you know, fighting pit bulls and I mean, like terrible stuff. So uh, yeah, I mean, none of these things show up on paper. Um, and these are all uh, yeah, hidden costs. Like you said, doesn't mean you can't make money, but you really need a niche skill set to succeed in that, in that sub market. Yeah. The last thing I'll say about that too, is you, you, you make money in single families based off of your ability to hold tenants and properties and not have turn. You lose money on the turn, especially if you have a property manager. First, when a tenant moves out, there's going to be some sort of cleanup that you have to do and some sort of repairs, even if it's a couple hundred bucks. I mean, these single family homes are only cash flowing a couple hundred bucks a month. So typically wipes out your cash flow for a couple months a year. And then next is if you have a property manager, you're usually paying them half or up to a full month's rent. So you're basically taking the full month, the full year's cash flow and losing it on the turn. So if you're going to have somebody that literally just stays in a property and flips every 12 months, it's hard to get ahead unless you're just banking on appreciation. That is 100% true. <laughs> Um, so you had these portfolio in Baltimore and then you decided to ultimately liquidate them. Why did you go through the liquidation process? Uh, well, I mean, for one thing, all the things we just talked about, right? <laughs> all, all the reasons I, I was one of those classic tired landlords that, you know, you, you, <laughs> you hear people say, oh, you know, go, go find great off market deals from tired landlords. who just want to get out. Like I was one of those people. <laughs> Call Brian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, but the the larger answer to that question is I, I moved overseas in 2015. Uh, my wife and I moved to Abu Dhabi and, and later we moved to Brazil and now we're in Peru. And uh, so we're expats. And I, when I moved overseas, I really, it, it became clear to me how much I had been subsidizing those properties with my own labor. Uh, you know, I couldn't do that anymore from, from Abu Dhabi, from halfway across the world. Um, you know, the property manager really had to do everything but they, they weren't doing a very good job with any of that stuff. And, and I had been, like I said, I've been kind of subsidizing their, their labor with that. Um, but when I couldn't do that anymore, it, it, it just, it made it clear to me that these were bad investments. They really had always been bad investments and it was just time to, to cut the losses and move on. Uh, and, you know, and nowadays I only invest passively, of course, <laughs> um, which is a lot easier to do from overseas, but it also comes with none of those headaches that I just absolutely hated as a landlord. Yeah. Now there are pros and cons to investing actively versus passively. Sure. I guess help us understand uh, beyond moving overseas, which I agree. Um, definitely you can't subsidize your labor unless you're just flying first class back from Abu Dhabi on Dubai <laughs> Air, which would be kind of sweet actually. But uh, why, I, I think there is a rule of thumb there around, hey, should I take on this active project or should I just do passively? What was the decision to move passively or, or what, what sacrifices did you make having to go passively? 
Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. Well, the big... The big downside that people talk about with passive real estate investments is you surrender control, right? I'm not a control freak. So <laughs> that's not a big sacrifice to me. Um, real estate is inherently a long-term investment, you know, even if you're investing actively, right? I mean, if, when you buy a property directly, you, you take on an initial loss from the purchase closing costs, right? Uh, and an implied loss from the costs that it would cost you to sell. Um, you know, the, the second run of closing costs from selling. So it takes years, typically, to build enough appreciation to, to cover those two rounds of closing costs, right? So inherently a long-term investment, right? I mean, it, everybody knows real estate is, is illiquid. Now, there are some ways you can invest in short-term real estate, you know, passively, you know, things like short-term notes that are backed by, by properties or by secured notes or, or liens or whatever. But um, if you're buying properties directly, it's a, it's a long-term investment. Uh, and when you're investing passively, in most cases, it's also a long-term investment. So, uh, you know, surrendering control, uh, that was just never that big of a, a sacrifice to me. You know, these, you know, most real estate syndications, you know, they don't sell or, or refinance for at least three years, you know, sometimes five or, or seven. But you know, if you're investing directly in properties, you should probably be holding those properties for five years, seven years, you know, maybe longer. Um, so that's that's not a big drawback to me. Um, so you know, and yes, when you when you invest actively, you can do things like the Burr method and try to pursue what they call infinite returns, where you go and you 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 renovate a property and you force all this equity and then you refinance it a few months after buying it and you pull all of your initial down payment and closing costs back out of it. So you have $0 invested in that property, but you're still collecting cash flow and still earning appreciation on it. Um, that's, that's a great model in theory and it's what I used to try to do. Uh, it's really hard in practice to actually cash flow on that if you pull every dollar that you have in it back out, um, you know, especially in this market of high interest rates. Uh, it's, it's hard to do, but in, on paper, it's great. And if you can pull it off, it's great for that velocity of money where you're, you're getting your money back you know, every few months. And just you can just keep recycling that same down payment again and again and again in all these properties and keep adding cash flowing assets to your portfolio. That's great if you can do it takes a high skill set, a lot of knowledge, a lot of labor to do that. Um, and you can do the same thing with passive investments. You just have to be more patient. You know, it typically takes two, three years, uh, maybe longer for the sponsor to turn around and refinance it to, you know, to finish renovating a, a 200 unit apartment complex or whatever, uh, instead of one single family home. Um, but the same model can apply with passive investments. So yeah, as far as downsides to, to passively investing, I just don't see that many. I mean, the returns are similar, uh, in many cases better than actively investing in single family properties, small multifamily, you know, two to four unit multifamily properties. Um, 
you know, you get all the same tax breaks uh, as a as a passive investor. The the one the only the one caveat with with tax breaks is that as a passive investor, you don't get that um, that twenty five thousand um, dollar. So with with active investments, if you take a loss on a, a direct property investment, you can use up to twenty five thousand dollars of loss each year to to offset your active income, your W two income, or your self employment income. Uh, you can't do that with passive investments. You can only use passive losses to offset other um, passive gains. Uh, but that's really the only tax distinction. And that's offset by uh, accelerated depreciation with, uh, with passive investments. That's really impractical to do for the most part with direct property investments, at least small ones, you know, single family homes. So uh, yeah, that was a long winded answer, but uh, yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, I think you hit a lot of the high points. The way I look at it and the way I try to explain it is that you can make more money doing active real estate. So if you have a certain skill set around doing active real estate in your day job and that's what you do, you should probably continue to keep doing that. Um, maybe diversify a little bit with some passive investments here and there, but like your skill set is in active real estate. However, if you are a sales professional, a doctor, attorney, engineer, whatever your day job is, you can absolutely go learn those skill sets and be an active investor. You can make more money, but it is going to be active. You are going to take your time. So as a general rule of thumb, I don't like taking on active projects, um, single family burrs, things like that, unless I can see a cumulative 25% return every year, because I know that one, I'm going to have to put my sweat equity into it. And two, and most importantly, and the thing that no one talks about is I'm legally exposed at that point. And no matter how many, how much insurance you have, how many LLCs you have, and you're covered because this attorney said that you have a Wyoming LLC, yada, yada. If you get pulled into a lawsuit, it will cost you a lot of time and a lot of money that I can guarantee you is not worth it at the end of the day. And from a passive side, you're never going to have to be involved in that if you're a passive investor. I've been sued several times as a as a direct <laughs> property investor. Uh, it's not fun, it's, right? It's not fun at all. <laughs> it even sucks. if you win, <laughs> like, even if you yeah. win, you lose. Yes, exactly. So uh, that that is a great point, and you're right that not enough people talk about that. That you you don't you don't carry any um, legal liability. You also don't carry any loan liability. So as an active investor, you have to sign a personal guarantee on those loans. Um, you know, if, if you default, not only can they take the property itself, the collateral, but if there's a deficiency, they'll come after your personal assets for that deficiency, uh, which is also not fun. Um, so you don't right. take either of those two risks as a passive investor. So that's, right. that's worth noting. And, and you're right. If there is more money to be made as an active investor, if you are doing syndications, if you're a sponsor and you're getting the, the promote and that you know, that, that preferential profit split and all that stuff. Uh, you, yes, there's a lot of money to be made. Um, you know, the acquisition fee. And I mean, as, as you well know, as a sponsor, there, there is, there's good money to be made there. But if you are just actively investing in like single family rental properties, I, I just don't see the, the higher returns on single family rentals, small multifamily rentals over passive investments in syndications or funds or, you know, other private equity investments. I tend to agree. Unless you have some great off market channel. Um, like yes. my best deal was I took a $80,000 uh, wholesale deal. I was able to do the burst strategy, got it reappraised for 150, was able to take all my money out plus $5,000. And it still cash flows to this day, $550 a month. Like that's, that's a dang good deal. And that's I fantastic. went and 
took that money, bought a triplex that eventually got appreciated like 150,000, sold that, moved it into this other deal. So that one, um, basically, and it was all done by the hard money loan. So it cost me like 10 grand upfront to do it. Uh, so with that 10 grand, I now have about 250 K of equity working in different investments, but that's not, that wasn't normal. That's because I found a very distressed opportune, uh, investment that I moved on within two hours. Like I signed a contract within two hours. Cause I understood the value of where that was and some other things like that. So I wish it was a repeatable process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of, that's the thing about active investing that I have found is that finding good deals it, it's such a you need to have a niche skill set to be able to do that uh you know on a consistent and repeatable basis you know to to consistently find really good deals uh you know you you really need a narrow niche that you have mastered you know so for example on our podcast you know we had a woman who came on who specializes in probate investing and that's her thing and she and she's mastered it you know over the course of decades so you know, month in and month out, she can go out there and find great deals from people who inherited properties that they just have no interest in keeping or selling for, for top dollar. They just want it gone. So, but this is her niche and she, you know, it took a lot of, of niche knowledge for her to, to master that. Right. Uh, whereas as a passive investor, you don't need all that, that level of skill, uh, to earn high returns. Yeah. So speaking of passive investor, um, since we're in the age of 2023, I'll use the word democratized. You have now democratized the idea of being a passive investor through a co-investing club. Um, you mentioned it at the top of the show, but just to rewind us and, and take us back, what? how do you define a co-investing club? And let's go in there, go in from there. Yeah. So if you imagine a, a classic investment club from like the 20th century where, you know, a bunch of people sit in a a, a salon and they, they smoke stogies or whatever, and they, and they, they vet stock investments, you know, it's kind of like that, but in the 21st century, uh, and instead of stocks, we're investing in passive real estate investments. So every month our club gets together, we vet deals, we, we vet passive real estate investment deals, you know, funds, syndications, um, you know, notes, and you know, we bring the sponsor on and we grow them together on deals. And Anyone who wants to invest in that month's deal can do so with $5,000 or more like per person. Uh, we create a joint LLC for that specific deal. Everyone who participates gets listed as a member in that LLC you know, for their ownership percentage based on what they invested. Uh, that LLC then invests in the syndication or whatever the, the ultimate investment is as a singular LP. Uh, it takes up one non-accredited investor slot uh, that is that is important to us. One of our core values as a club is inclusivity with non-accredited investors. We really want to make this accessible to everybody, not just the wealthy. The wealthy have plenty of <laughs> plenty of investment opportunities already. Um, so our mission is really to make this available to everybody. Um, and we also serve accredited investors by letting them spread small amounts of money across a lot of different investments. Uh, so you know they don't have to put an entire fifty grand, hundred grand, whatever tied up in a single deal. Um, but yeah, so the, some of the members will inevitably be non-accredited investors. That makes the entire LLC one non-accredited investor in the deal. Um, but yeah, then the LLC has its own bank account. It gets paid distributions and we just divvy those up according to people's uh, ownership percentage. Uh, and that's that. Everyone gets their own K1 at the end of the year. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great way to invest. Just in case it's a new term for everybody, what can you define accredited and non-accredited investor? 
Absolutely. So an accredited investor must meet one of two, well, there's technically more than that, but two main ways to qualify as an accredited investor. One is a minimum net worth of $1 million, not including any equity in your home, your primary residence. The other is to earn at least $200,000 a year for each of the last two years and the expectation that you will do so again this year, uh, or $300,000 a year for married couples. Uh, and then there are a couple other ways you can qualify, uh, you know, if, you, if you've passed uh, Series 65, for example, and you work for an investment firm. Uh, but the two main ways are just either having a high net worth or at a high income. Um, so wealthy, wealthy people, basically wealthy investors, uh, is an accredited investor. Yeah. And as I kind of gotten into the space and helped put together these deals, you would be surprised how many people are non-accredited and it's really that two year mark. Like maybe they had a good year and they're in sales and they had a good year. And then the next year they're at like 195 K well, right. you don't qualify. I mean, right. I know plenty of VPs at smaller companies that have a lot of equity in those companies. Um, that are just starting out, but they don't make much in a salary. So they don't get a chance to diversify and things like that. So really bringing the non-accredited group together as one single LP investor is a, as, is an advantage for your group that I haven't really seen across the co-investing space industry yet. As far as I know, there's no one else doing <laughs> exactly what we're doing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can think of one club that is in the same ballpark, uh, left field investors does something similar, but they more serve accredited investors and, and they don't actively uh, merge funds to invest as an entity the way that we do. So uh, yeah, no, it's it's totally unique what we're doing and we're really passionate about it. We love it. Yeah. And I also love this idea of smaller investment chunks. So, I mean, typically when you go out to try to do passive investments, I mean, I got one the other day, I saw uh, somebody on LinkedIn and they were doing some notes and things like that. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. They sent me their perspectives back. The minimum investment they would take is a million dollars. And I'm like, holy <laughs> smokes, like I'm in this space and I, I would love to kind of diversify against different operators and things like that. But that's a little steep for me. And even some well names out there, they have minimum 250K, minimum 100K, things like that. So um, the idea that, hey, I want to get involved in some of these things, but maybe at a 10K level, 15K level uh, is not something you see typically in this industry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's one thing that is, that's another core value of our club is diversification. So, uh, you know, it, this, in 2023, we, we did 13 official deals as a club. Um, so, uh, you know, if you, if you invested 5k in each one of those deals, that's 65 grand. Uh, if you put 65 grand in one single investment and that investment totally fell apart, you know, that would keep you up at night, right? I mean, whereas if you've got, five grand and 13 different investments, it just becomes a bell curve, right? Where some of some of those are going to underperform, some of them are going to, are going to overperform. Most will be in the middle of the bell curve. It just averages out to become numbers on a page, which is a much lower stress way of investing, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and we get to put money in lots of different property types, lots of different industries, you know, different geographical markets, different sponsors. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I like to say that my crystal ball is no clearer than anyone else's. I don't know if multifamily is going to do well over the next few years or, or mobile home parks or whatever. But, you know, I do know that if I have money spread across a lot of different markets and a lot of different properties and property types and sponsors, I'm probably going to come out okay in the end. Yeah, I want to go back to your bell curve just real quick. I mean, you are investing. 
right? And you're ta- I'm starting to talk to more and more LPs that have been doing this uh, business now for seven or eight years as a passive investor. And they're starting to say, hey, like everything was fine until this year. And this investor, did, this sponsor did a capital call. This one foreclosed on the property and those sorts of things. And uh, very few of them are like, eh, I understand, right? Like that that's going to happen in this space. A lot of them are like, I just can't believe it. That was all my money. I, I didn't know that it could happen. And uh, I'm like, well, here's a forum of Bitcoin people that you can go talk to if you don't think that you can lose <laughs> all your money in one investment over the course of 12 months. Right. No, I, I'd say that facetiously, but it is, it, it, it is an active part of investing that some things are going to work way better than you expected. Some might work a little bit worse than you expected. The average will be somewhere in the middle as long as you continue to be in the space and, and uh, uh, are able to make the next investment into your next round. Yeah, and some will be catastrophic losses. I mean, <laughs> that, that's yeah. that happens if you invest in stocks. It happens if you invest in you know direct real estate investments and passive real estate investments. There is very real risk in in this space, and really in any investment that's going to pay a decent return. Uh, there's very real risk, and you have to be comfortable with that risk. And if not, go buy treasury notes, right? I mean, right, <laughs> or, right. or treasury bonds. So uh, yeah, you you have to learn how to just be comfortable with risk, how to analyze risk, uh, and how to take calculated risks. I love it. Well, Brian, fantastic conversation. I'm going to switch this now to our last round. We're calling this the four toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's giving you a paradigm shift? Oh man, a book that, okay. So I, for any business owners out there, I really like Traction by Gino Wickman. Uh, so they, it's, it's, they call it an operating system for entrepreneurs, uh, which is, is really what it is. It's, it's a great framework to approach your business with as, especially as a small business owner. Uh, so yeah, I would, I would recommend traction by Gino Wickman. I also, um, you know, atomic habits by James clear. I know that's a popular one, but it's, it's a fun read, easy read. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, that you you don't rise to your goals, you fall to the the level of your habits. Uh, you know, I love that line from the book, and it's a great paradigm shift. It's all about your habits. So, all right, that's yeah. two that you've probably heard before, but I'll leave it there. Yeah, uh, Atomic Habits is popular for a reason. I'll just leave it at that. Our second one is: What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? <sighs> you know, I would say to have the humility to go and get expert help. Um, and that, that is true with your investments. It's true with your career. It's true with your mental health. It's true with your, your marriage and relationships. Uh, it's, it's true across the board. And, you know, I just, I remember being in my twenties and going out and buying up all those, those low end investment properties and, you know, things might have turned out differently if I had bothered to go get a mentor or a senior partner or, you know, learn from a coach, uh, to get expert help in that. Um, and instead, you know, I had that, that hubris of youth where I, you know, I just thought I could, I could do it all on my own. You know, I'll figure this out. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I mean, I, that independent spirit that does, uh, you know, make you give you that entrepreneurial spirit. That's great. But the flip side of that is kind of thinking that you can do it all yourself and you, you really can't, or you can, but you're going to make a lot more mistakes and they're going to cost you a lot more money. So go out, get expert help from you know whoever it is uh that you need it from and and don't be too arrogant to uh to get help i love it you can definitely get to the same destination by zigging and zagging all over youtube or you can just hire somebody who's already done it that can take you from point a to point b so might as well do it the fast and efficient way yep 
Our third one is what are you most proud of in your life? You know, I would say approaching my life, uh, at least in the, the, the more recent part of my adulthood, uh, approaching it with a sense of lifestyle design and intentionality, you know, trying to design an ideal life. And that really started with, with moving overseas. Um, and, you know, so we hadn't, we hadn't founded Spark Rental yet when I moved overseas. Uh, that was something that I did actually in the first year of moving overseas, trying to, to build out an online business that I could do from anywhere in the world. Um, you know, and really building our entire lives around, you know, the way that we wanted to live instead of just the, the path of least resistance that most people take, you know, living in the suburbs with a white picket fence and a dog named Fido and, you know, st probably staying in the same town where you grew up or, or the same state where you grew up. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, just approaching my entire life from a, a design uh, standpoint and a design mindset, trying to intentionally design that, that ideal life for me personally. Yeah. I'm personally offended because my dog's name is Fido. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But yeah, I, I love to travel. One of the biggest regrets I have in my life is not living overseas. And this idea that you can uh, work and live overseas these days is truly amazing. And uh, definitely I look up to you for that. Cause that's, that's a goal of mine still to this day. It's fun. Our fourth and final one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? All right. So, I mean, I feel like the, the wise answer to that, like the, 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 the wisest answer would be, you know, Buddha or, or Jesus or, or someone like that who is going to, you know, sit down and set you straight with, with the meaning of life. Um, I think it'd be fun to sit down with David Attenborough and, <laughs> and just, and talk about some of his adventures and, and travels. Um, and just some of the stuff that he's seen over the like seven decades that he's been out there in the wilderness, you know, shooting stuff that most people never get to experience firsthand. So, uh, yeah, two answers, I guess <laughs> the, the wise answer I, and the more fun answer. I'll show my ignorance. Who is David Attenborough? Yeah. You know, the, the, uh, the, the nature documentarian, uh, you know, he, he, he narrates all the, the, the BBC nature documentaries and stuff okay. like, you know, um, our planet and planet earth and all that. You don't, you don't watch those. No, but, uh, I should, I should, the kids love, um, uh, animals and they're in that phase now. So I'm going to have to look it up right now. You'll, you'll probably recognize his voice. I mean, he has a very iconic voice because I mean, he's done basically all of the biggest budget nature documentaries for the last like 70 years. The guy's like 94 years old now. I mean, he's, so, but yeah, he's been in this for like way longer than either you or I have been alive. Um, but you'll recognize his voice uh, and he's, he's, he's very famous in that space. Got it. Got it. Well, Brian, fantastic conversation. Thank you for coming on the show. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more about Spark Rental or what you've got going on, where is the best place we can point them? Yeah, well, you know, come to sparkrental.com, of course. Uh, you can reach me personally at brian at sparkrental.com. You can reach our company at support at sparkrental.com. You can find us on, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or I guess it's X now, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, but seriously, reach out. Don't be a stranger. You know, my partner and I answer all of our emails ourselves. You know, it's not like we have VAs running around answering our emails for us. Um, so please, yeah, reach out. We're here to, uh, to chat and just to hear what you're interested in, in doing investment-wise. Awesome. We will leave those in the show notes. And then Brian, thanks for coming on. Matt, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.